The following Women's Spaces show was recorded on Monday, July 6, 2020. The woman in your life will do what she must do to comfort you and calm you down and let you rest now. The woman in your life, she can rest so easily. She knows everything you do because the woman in your life is you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Women's Spaces. My name is Elaine B. Holtz, and I'm your host. With me at the board is my friend, my partner, my engineer, and my co-producer, Ken Norton. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, Elaine. What a beautiful, beautiful morning it is here in Sonoma County. It's going to be a very, very warm day. I have two special guests for this show. Joining me on the phone will be Dr. Kim D. Hester-Williams, a professor of literature at Sonoma State University. She teaches African-American literature from early to the contemporary period and uh, this is going to be interview number three with Dr. Williams and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I interviewed uh, Dr. Williams on May 11th and June 20th so like I said this will be uh, part uh, three of our interviews. And I want to do a special shout out to Dr. Williams, who was one of the main speakers at the 50th anniversary celebration for Juneteenth here in Santa Rosa. Also joining me on the phone will be Sydney Locke uh, Davenport, who is the president and director of the Prayer Chapel Singers, a gospel group. And she wrote and recorded a great song called Black Lives Matter. I am going to play it at the first break and then have Sydney talk about the inspiration and the importance of the song. What I love about it is the young... The young women singing with Sydney, you know, our youth are our future, and listening to these young people absolutely gave me hope. And, you know, Sydney, I would have to say, is she's one of those ordinary women doing an extraordinary thing, and I really encourage people, just listen to the song and just pick up on everything that they are saying, and black lives do matter. And to remind folks, you know, if black lives don't matter, nobody's lives matter. So it's very important that we have that in our consciousness. Well, our history is our strength and since we just had 4th of July happy 4th of July where we celebrate Independence Day and uh, it's a federal holiday in the United States commemorating the Declaration of Independence of the United States on July 4th 1776 where the Continental Congress met and declared the 13 American colonies were no longer subject and subordinate to the monarch of Britain King George III and are now united, free, and independent states. What's really interesting is the uh, Congress had voted to declare Independence uh, Day two days earlier on July 2nd, but it was not declared until July 4th. Why? Why was it not declared until July 4th? Because that's when they had all the signers. Everybody signed it. Amazing. And you know, it, it's, it's really interesting. There is so much debate going on about wearing a mask, not wearing a mask. And I want to remind people, you know, freedom, freedom is very, very interesting. You know, we're free, but we're not free to just hurt one another. I mean, it's, it's a little bit different when we're asked to wear a mask to protect ourselves and to protect others. And people are saying they're taking their freedoms away. You know, I, I'd like to talk just a second about the First Amendment rights. 
you know, the First Amendment, you know, is when people are out there protesting. I think there should be more debating about the protesting and why are the police coming out in full army gear and beating on the protesters when we have the First Amendment right, which is no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise, therefore abridging the freedom of speech or the press. Can you believe that? And we have reporters and we have that are being having their cameras taken away and slugged. I mean, I've seen such horrific things on television. I, I cannot believe it. You know, the right of the people also, we have a right to peacefully assemble and to petition, to petition our government to address grievances. And we have a lot of grievances against them these days. So it's very important that we recognize that we do have First Amendment rights and that we need to support one another in that action. So I think the folks who are complaining about masks, I'd like to see them complain a little bit more about what's happening with the police violence and excessive force with these people are coming out and saying, listen, enough is enough. Stop killing our children. Black Lives Matter. And we want you to hear that. And the reason they're saying Black Lives Matter is because who's the ones that are being killed on the streets? If it's not for African-American people, for heaven's sakes. So let's get a grip, folks, and let's start looking at our country and what it stands for. You know, we stand for a lot of things. And one of the things that's so important is that we do have freedom of speech and a right to assemble. Well, another thing happened on July 4th that I think is really exciting. There's something I always like to find out new information. On July 4th, 1876, suffragists crashed the, con- the continental, uh, let's see, the centennial celebration in Independence Hall to present the vice president with the Declaration of the Rights of Women, written by Matilda Jocelyn Gage. And it's very, very interesting. I never knew that there was a Declaration of the Rights of Women. Women. It was written on September uh, in 1791 by a French activist, feminist, and playwright, oh my goodness, Olympia de Gouz, in response to the Declaration of Rights of Man and of the Citizen. You know, and here she's saying, you know, that she wants also equal rights for women. And I'm going to put the declaration on uh, uh, Women's Spaces, www.womenspaces, for you folks who are interested in reading it. It is a very, very interesting. The Declaration of the Rights of Women is significant because it brought attention to a set of feminist concerns that collectively reflected and influenced the aims of many French Revolution activists. Well, you know, what's so interesting about this declaration of rights of women and the female when we wrote the constitution of the united states even though it said all men were created equal african americans were considered half human which is disgusting in my mind and women did not have the right to vote so it's very very interesting when you start thinking of our history that's why it's so important that we all vote you know, voting is is voting is a voting is the 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 foundation of democracy. You know that we have a right to choose our leaders. You know that's what the Declaration of Independence was all about: breaking from a monarchy, breaking from somebody who was authoritarian over us. And it's very important. Um, I, I'm good. I was just going to take a, a musical break. Uh, but I don't know Ken left here where we are going to take a musical break 
and uh, I will be playing the song Black Lives Matter are written by Sydney Locke Davenport and when I return I will be talking with Sydney and I don't know what happened to Ken he took he took a small break here so what I'd like to do oh here he comes Ken I'm just about ready to take a, a musical break you know here we're live folks we're live in the studio so every <laughs> all kinds of things go on so we're going to take a musical break and the song I will be playing is Black Lives Matter written by Sydney Locke Davenport and I will return we will be talking with Sydney and give us she will give us a little background on the song and what inspired her and the importance of the young people participating so let's go ahead let's listen to Black Lives Matter come together and vote and I'll tell you this is a beautiful song written by an ordinary woman doing extraordinary things 
Well, thank you for joining us, and you are listening to KBBF 89.1 FM, Calistoga, Santa Rosa. I want to remind my listeners the opinions expressed here are not necessarily the opinions of KBBF, the Board of Directors, its members, and women's spaces. Well, welcome back. You're listening to Women's Spaces, and I'm your host, Elaine B. Holtz. And without further ado, I want to introduce my guest. Joining me on the phone is Sydney Locke Davenport, who's the president and director of the Prayer Chapel Singers, who, by the way, was founded by her grandmother, evangelist uh, Martel Perry. Um, I, we're very, very proud of her. And uh, Sydney is the writer and creator of the song we just played, Black Lives Matter. Welcome, Sydney. Welcome to Women's Spaces. Good morning. Good morning. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I have to tell my have to tell my listeners when you watch the when you watch the song on film, there you are riding a horse. I just think that's just amazing. <laughs> anyway, Sydney, uh, let's let's start a little bit. Talk a little bit about your background and and uh, how you uh, formed the uh, how the uh, the prayer chapel singers was formed. And what was your what was your inspiration uh, to write this song? Uh, well, Pro Chapel Singers was formed by my grandmother, uh, Evangelist Marto Perry. Uh, we've been singing since we were children um, and continue to sing. Um, now, we still continue to sing on a regular. Um, and the song was br- really inspired by, you know, the tragedies that have, that have happened. Um, definitely the George Floyd one really touched me. Um, I could not watch any of that. Um, I know how it ended. And that just really um, inspired me to um, explain to my children, uh, my young grandchildren, um, in words. You know, singers express themselves through song, and I thought it was the best way for me to explain uh, to them what it, what was going on in the news, what what people were talking about, um, in a in a soft, sensitive way um, that wasn't offensive to anyone. How how was it for them, uh, you know, finding out, you know, you giving an explanation, if you could tell us a little bit, uh, what that's the next question uh, that I'm going to ask, but what was it like for them recording it? Did it give them a sense of pride, did it, uh, unhappiness? What, what, what was the general feeling? Well, as, as a parent, a grandparent, I'm an example, so I have to basically, um, when you're expressing your things through your children, you have to do it in a way that's not... You're not offending any color, any race, uh, and just explaining to them this is this is what's happening in the world, and and a way to try to fix it. You know, a way to try to look at it at a better way. And so, as you could see in the song, they are expressing what has happened to uh, people of color, um, and then a way to change it at the end, where we're saying, you know, change comes by you know voting, change comes by putting stuff on paper. And so that's how I, you know, my youngest grandchild in that video is five. And so, you know, when we made the posters, we explained to them. And, you know, she knows that um, Verona Taylor got killed sleeping in her bed. You know, that's, that's what she knows. And um, singing, and uh, that sticks. It sticks for me. This is the second song I wrote. The set, first song I sung was about experience. Um, uh, the, my family members in the group, uh, myself, the verses were made by experiences. So these are the verses that I gave my uh, the children to sing for were experiences, and that, as in song, it will stick. It re- you'll remember it. 
Well, it also is, is, a, is a creative way to tell young people because I, I, I can't imagine, I mean, five years old, I mean, I, I see young people right now as little as five and six expressing themselves with their fears and their, their disappointment and their, and their call to action is just amazing. Well, listen, one question I'd like to ask is, as an African-American woman, you know, what, what, is, what is the words Black Lives Matter mean to you on a on a heart level i mean what well how does that impact you and how was you know when you were growing up i mean it was not happening and now it is happening so how is that affecting you and how does that uh, motivate you well as a uh african-american woman it has not just started it started from grade school it started you know defending uh myself defending people off my sister um so it it hasn't started it always has been there um to live with, you know, the black, for people thinking the black race is the lowest of low. Um, I was never asked first, was African American. Um, so those are things that you experience. I can't change how God made me. I can only, um, live my life through what vision God has for me and pass that to my children. We can't, I can't change how I got here. I can't. And that's what I think a lot of people, uh, don't understand you know they want to put a person in a in a certain kind of um, bubble um, but we can't change what what color God made us and so you know it's, a lot of people can change walking down the street you can't change the color of being black um, but this is just something that um, we've been dealt and and uh, it seems like our people are just the ones that are targeted and can't defend themselves and to see that man die on television i i think it made it clear to people that we're not just crying wolf this is happening this is happening on every hour on a daily basis it's happening way too much and we just can't sit back and not our lives matter our children's lives matter our son's lives matter yes and all you know Definitely, you know, and I, I have to go back to what you said about um, about George Floyd. I mean, I, I remember when I watched that video. In fact, I found it where they had a clock and they were ticking, like, how many seconds that that knee was on his neck and then watching him expire right in front of your eyes. I mean, you said to yourself, is this my country? And also, I think that uh, what you said is so true, you know, that it's for you, it's been a lifelong struggle. I mean, that you can't change who you are. You know, I often think of myself, I was brought up, I was brought up Jewish, and there's a lot of of anti-Semitism, but the difference is I could always change my name, I could live in another neighborhood, nobody has to know, but with with African-American people, there you are, (laughs) you know, and so it's very important to understand that black lives matter, and Definitely, especially those young children. Well, we've come to the end of, of the segment, Sydney. Is there any last words, anything you'd like to say to the listening audience? And, and how can people watch that video? Is it on YouTube? It's, a, it's on YouTube. Um, it was produced by Harrison Production. Two young, very talented boys in Sonoma County. Their mother is Mandy Brooks. Um, and they, they made that video for me. I wrote that song on a Tuesday, uh, called the studio, produced it on that Saturday, and they came and did the video on Sunday. So when it's God's plan, it works very fast, and I was very happy with the outcome. Um, and there's more to come for me. I don't think that's the last song uh, from me, but, um, you know, with the pandemic, it's a little harder. i got to use who I have. <laughs> 
some of time that's not very easy, but um, my my family is very um, great at fulfilling uh, things that come out of my soul or my heart or what God gives me, and um, that's what I'm going to continue to do. I'm going to continue to be continue to be a vessel to be used for good. Well, I want to publicly thank you also. You know, uh, we're both part of the Juneteenth celebration here in Sonoma County, and we celebrated 50 years uh, here, and also your grandmother who had started it about 25 years before it even went into the park. Right. But what was so wonderful it was seeing you and the prayer chapel singers, and just it was just a beautiful event, and you definitely enhanced it. So I want to thank you very much for doing that, and thank you so much for being on Women's Spaces. Thanks for having me. And thank you for that lovely song and for allowing us to play it. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, my friend. Bye-bye. Well, boy, I'll tell you something. There's nothing like having an ordinary woman on the air doing extraordinary things. So thank you to Sydney Locke, uh, Davenport, for writing that song and allowing me to share it. And it is on YouTube, and that's Black Lives Matter. So a wonderful, wonderful song. Well... We're going to take a break here, a musical break, and then I'm going to have my second guest with me who's going to be joining on the phone will be Dr. Kim D. Hester Williams, a professor of literature at Sonoma State University. Uh, She teaches African-American literature from early to the contemporary period, and we'll be talking about feminism and its impact and changes that are happening today. And I have a little surprise. Um, Dr. Williams was on, also on our uh, Juneteenth celebration, and her uh, I'm going to be playing one of the uh, songs I think that she's really going to enjoy. It's called Ella's Song, sung by Resistance Rival Chorus. And this is in, in thanking her, my way of thanking her for the wonderful speech that she did. So let's go ahead, Ken. Let's play the song, and then when we come back, we will be talking with Dr. Kim D. Hester Williams. We'll believe in freedom can arrest mm. We who believe in freedom can rest until it comes We who believe in freedom can arrest mm. We who believe in freedom can
God, we believe in freedom. You definitely cannot rest. You know, I picked up on two special lyrics that I never caught before. And the one is, is the young people who have the courage to stand up where the adults in the room have failed. And you hear a lot of that in the environmental movement. What were you doing in the past 50 years or something? And that's very important. And then the other thing about mothers, again, you know, to remind people, war is nothing but one mother's son or daughter killing another mother's son and daughter. You know, and us mothers have got to stand up. We've got to stand up and we've got to train our children for peace, not for war. You know, it's very, very interesting. Anyway, that's really that song inspired me. And when I found when I found it by this uh, resistance revival chorus and I listened to it, I went, yeah. Anyway, welcome back. You are listening to Women's Spaces, and I'm your host, Elaine B. Holtz. And without further ado, I want to introduce my next guest. Joining me on the phone is Dr. Kim Hester-Williams, who is a professor of English and American Multicultural Studies at Sonoma State University. Welcome, Dr. Hester-Williams. Welcome once again to Women's Spaces. Thank you so much, Elaine. Thank you for having me again. Well, I hope you like that song because that was the title of your of your speech that you gave for Juneteenth, which was very, very impressive. And before we start, is it okay if I, first of all, if I call you Kim and also if I tell our listeners a little bit about you? Please do. Please call me Kim. Um, I, I would very much appreciate you calling me Kim. Well, I also, you know, to be honest with you, I love when I call women like Dr. Williams. I mean, the fact that you have a doctorate is just amazing. I mean, I'm so proud. I mean, I have a master's degree, but a doctor's degree, that's really to be as a... Mm. Anyway, let me tell our listeners just a little bit about Dr. Williams here. She's a professor of English and American Multicultural Studies at Sonoma State University. She currently serves as the chair of the American Multicultural Studies in addition to teaching 19th century American literature, African American literature, and culture. And she is affiliate faculty in the Film Studies and Women and Gender Studies at Sonoma State. She is co-editor with Lily Lani Nisham of Racial Ecologies, a book of collections of interdisciplinary essays on race and environment published by the University of Washington Press in 2018. Her poetry is grounded in the long tradition of African-American womanist poetics. She is currently an active member of the American Canyon Soptibus Association, an organization that supports economic empowerment and vitality of all women through education, training, and solidarity. Well, welcome, welcome to Women's Spaces once again. Is there anything that I missed, Dr.? Dr. Williams, and then we'll call, start calling you Kim. Oh, okay. Well, thank you, Elaine, for that very generous introduction. And I would only say, um, again, that um, I know it's it's harder to pronounce, but Leilani Nishimi, um, which is actually a beautiful name, Hawaiian name. Leilani is um, the co-editor for Racial Ecologies. Um, is Japanese American and um, really, um, you know, um, from Hawaii. Her, her family is from Hawaii, and um, so she has that beautiful name, Leilani, um, that actually is spelled with two um, uppercase L's, which I've always in emails, you know, tried to remember. <laughs> um, so I, I guess I, I want to start with that, just to say that um, that collaboration is um, really foundational to my beliefs as a feminist, and that is um, uh, collectivity, 
um, that we are all um, connected, interconnected, uh, interwoven, um, and that when we lose our sight of that is when we are truly lost. And we are seeing that with the pandemic. We are seeing the um, exposure of what it what happens when we lose sight of our um, connection to one another as beings, and that's our connection to the land, our connection to um, other animals, our connection as a whole um, society. Well, you and know, so anyway, I, I would lo- love to talk about how Leilani and I, instead of writing a single authored book, came together in collaboration and brought in other authors to work together um, to bring forth uh, a, a, a sort of a unified voice, a collective voice, but also with individual um, perspectives. Well, let me ask you something. Uh, how does one find this Rachel Ecologies? Is there a website? Is it a magazine? What is it? It's, it's a book. It's an academic book, and it's actually quite popular, um, and I want to be very thankful for that. Um, you can find it a lot of places, any bookstore. Um, it's definitely available um, in independent bookstores. It's the University of Washington Press, so you can go on that website and find it. Um, you can find it at the local, our um, local bookstore, my local bookstore here in Napa, Napa Bookmine, run by women. Want to definitely give a plug to Napa Bookmine. I'm, I'm in their feminist book club, at, which they have every fourth Wednesday um, and uh, at 6 p.m. And they have other book clubs, too, poetry book clubs, and, and they have, um, you know, fiction book clubs. And they do things that Amazon doesn't do. So, yes, you can find the book on Amazon and, and, and Barnes and & Noble, but you can also find it at um, the... Um, you know, um, Napa Bookmine and what's the local bookstore in Sonoma? I'm, I'm forgetting it now because I don't go to that we, bookstore we, anymore. We have several. Copperfields is one of the ones. Copperfields. That's why I was thinking of Copperfields. You'd be able to get it pretty um, easily. And then there's a bookstore um, that I used to go to all the time downtown, and I hope it's still there, downtown Santa Rosa. Oh, uh, and I, f- I can't remember. It's the use. What is it? Freehorn. Tree. Yes, Treehorn. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Yay for you. Uh, the professor is hand clapping you, Ken. I'm, I'm giving you a big applause. So yes, Treehorn. So, so when you look for it, the, the title is Racial Ecologies by you, yes. by Leilani. Racial Ecologies, you, yes. Okay. Okay, well, you know, this is, the, oh, this is, I mean, this is exciting. I mean, you've recommended so many books that we can just, uh, can it, what, what book are you reading? Can you read? Kindred. Uh, she's reading Kindred. Oh, right you're now. reading Kindred. Another, <laughs> another applause. More applause. More applause. <laughs> hey, be, behind every great woman is a man. You know that. <laughs> yes, of course. Anyway, this is our of third, <laughs> this is our third interview of a series. And, uh, I just want to remind you just a little bit, you know, just to start out, to once again talk a little bit about yourself, how you got involved in in this in this type of work. What was your motivation? And and the the most exciting thing about the last interview, I, I have to confess that I found out about you is that you were mentored by of all people Angela Davis, who's one of my heroes. So talk about how you got involved with all this and in in, in uh, the feminism and really reporting and doing a lot of work and a lot of research on it. Well, that that is true. I, I did. Um, I did uh, have 
some mentorship um, from Angela Davis, but also from Lucille Clifton. I'm not sure if I, I can't remember if I mentioned Lucille Clifton um, in the last um, show, but I, I do want to say that she was an important influence um, in my life. Lucille Clifton, of course, is uh, was the famed poet. Um, she wrote many poems, um, beautiful tributes to women, women's bodies. Um, she has the famous hips poem about loving one's hips. And, um, and she has, uh, yeah, and she, and she has the, the, my favorite, um, collection of her poetry is her Good Woman, um, the book, book, um, called Good Woman. It's a, a book, um, collection of her poetry in which she has a lot of, um, homages to various women in her life and to herself, frankly, and the struggle of being a mother, the beauty and the struggle of motherhood, um, the, um, compassion that one develops for other beings when you um you know become a mother um you know the enhanced you know sort of sensitivity to that um and you know yes please talking about mothers in the in the song we played that was the first time i really heard that talking about mothers you know the the african-american mother and the white mother that that what they're really doing is harming each other. It's their children that are harming one another. And that I really believe that that's such an important thing that mothers start recognizing, you know, that they really play a much more important role than just changing diapers. I mean, when you start thinking about it, you know, it's also training a child. So let's, Absolutely. Let's I, I do want to just let me say to that, uh, Elaine, just to speak as a, a literary, literary historian for a minute, minute what you just said was crucial and super important to think about the history of feminism. And that is that the first wave of feminism was not only started by women who believed very strongly, fiercely in women's rights, but they also were abolitionists. And I think I never, I I want my students always to remember that that first wave of feminism was really propelled by the passion that women like Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who wrote the um, Declaration of Sentiments. Um, you know, these women were, um, of course, um, you know, the, one of the most famous who wrote the most famous novel of the 19th century, Uncle Tom's Cabin. You know, Harriet Beecher Stowe was a staunch um, abolitionist. And so for them, women's rights and the abolition of slavery went hand in hand. Well, it is important to know because at the time... It was a collective of women coming together of all nationalities and all colors and all beliefs. I mean, you had wealthy women, poor women. You had all kinds of women that were moving towards doing what they felt was the right thing. You know, in fact, in fact, it's very interesting because I interviewed last week Dr. Shinoda, uh, Dr. Jean Shinoda Bolton, and she actually wrote a book called Message from the Mother, where she talks about that, where she literally talks about that women were the ones, the abolitionists and also the ones when they wrote the first uh, 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 the women, the uh, Mother's Day Proclamation, which was just amazing. Well, you know, how do you how do you define feminism? You know, and and why do you think it's important? What what is important about identifying I'm a feminist or what is feminist in your mind? Uh, so I would say, and I guess I'll backtrack a little bit to finish the question about my you know sort of how I came to feminism. 
Um, and that is that I really did. I was mentored not only by, you know, Angela Davis, but before that, Bettina, as I said, Bettina Apothecker at UC Santa Cruz, who taught introduction to feminism. And that truly was in the 80s, my first introduction, formal introduction to feminism. And then those long walks with Lucille Clifton, where she would talk about um, racial justice and she would talk about uh, inequality and what um, what inequality really looks like and and the consequences of of leaving uh, an entire segment of society or segments of society um out left out um not able to participate fully um and so um yeah for me i i really feminism is about human rights that's what i teach my students and that's what i firmly believe um it yes feminism is about women's rights but it's actually about human rights and that's why people like Harriet Beecher Stowe and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, people who were mothers, by the way, not all of the first wave feminists were, were mothers. And you didn't have to be, obviously, be a mother. As you said, it was a very diverse, um, you know, sort of membership um, participation well, in that movement. Can, can, can I just say something here about, about that? The way I look at it is, if I believe in a creator. I don't know what it is. You know, some people call it God. Everybody has a name for it. You know, whatever makes the plants grow, that to me is a creator. And in the scheme of things, women have been charged with the responsibility of bringing life in. So it, it doesn't matter if you have a child or not. It, it's, it's in your body. It's in your DNA that you have this ability, and therefore I believe you have to speak up for it. So I just wanted to throw <laughs> throw that in. And I want to add just a little bit about, about feminism. You know, oftentimes there is a, a little bit of a bad rap on it. I mean, I've noticed. But there's also a new concept that's coming up, and that has to do with feminism, which is intersectionality. Can you explain that just a little bit? And how is that influencing what is happening today, and why is that so important? Um, intersectionality is precisely what we, um, what the racial ecologies collection is founded on. The concept of ethnic studies, of racial justice, and intersectionality. Intersectionality is a concept again coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, um, in, um, you know, in the 80s that really was about looking at the intersecting, um, uh, oppressions, uh, that women of color, particularly black women, suffered. Um, that there was um, marginalization, marginalization and systemic oppression that happened economically, that happened judicially, that happened, um, you know, socially, that happened um, through, um, you know, sort of uh, the, the concept of stereotypes that black women suffer um, with regard to race and how, quote-unquote, race is defined in society, um, that it was both class, it was, um, it was economic, right, as far as class um, concerns are, you know, it was, it, was, it was multifaceted, that the oppression that black women suffered was not just a single, from one single system of oppression, but multiple systems um, that were pressing against black women's rights um, to live full lives, for their children to live full lives, um, to have a full expression of their humanity. And so, um, you know, we, we, in racial ecologies, we think about the environment and we think about the disproportionate numbers, um, of people of color and particularly black people. We talk about the Flint water crisis and the fact it's no, it's not, um, by half happenstance 
that um, communities of color live in places where they don't have access um, to, um, you know, fresh food, uh, grocery stores that, um, uh, you know, have healthy food options, uh, that they, there are uh, freeways all around and the pollution is elevated. You see the um, numbers of um, the cases of asthma in a place like Richmond, for instance, are much higher than they are in, um, you know, predominantly white um, communities. And so we we wanted to look at an inter we took an intersectional approach, which means looking at it from all of the systems um, that are oppressive and within you know that are oppressed. Um, people of color, and in particular, when we talk about intersectionality, and when Kimberly Crenshaw talked about intersectionality, she definitely meant black women. She was talking specifically about black women um, and black men, and the numbers of, for instance, um, the disproportionate, disproportionate numbers of black people who are um, ensnarled, I would say, in the um, criminal injustice system, as we like to call it. Um, you know, in, in prison, um, or on probation or in some way entangled within that, um, within that system. Well, so, it's, it's, it's amazing when you start thinking about it. As you were talking, I was thinking about, uh, in my own mind, you know, when you have one group that is suppressed, all groups are in danger. You know, they, people don't recognize that. You know, it's almost like the next, to me, when you're talking, it's like someone saying, you know, we'll see what we can get away with here and then maybe we'll expand it. And I know that I have a friend of mine that's having a health challenge right now and their, their whole fear is around insurance. So it, it kind of, it kind of moves in the same direction, even though it's more dominant, but you can see it It could happen in many other places, and that's why people, I believe, have to pay attention to what's going on, because if you get away with this, who knows what the next step is? I mean, it just, it does, it doesn't make any sense. And then you mentioned about the, uh, the flint, the flint of the water. You know, the amazing thing about that is, I, you know, when you think about it, it's still, the problem has not been resolved. It still exists. Do you, do you, why is that, do you think? 401 years, Elaine. <laughs> well, it, it's 401 years of this, as I think we talked about last time. The, um, those in power, um, those that are dominating the society, again, dominating it economically, trying to dominate it culturally, um, definitely, definitely racial supremacy. They've had a lot of practice and it morphs. It keeps changing as we, and we have continued to challenge it. It's been challenged since its inception. There has never been a moment where it has not been challenged, um, either by feminism, um, uh, by movements for racial justice have been there from the very beginning. Abolitionist movements have been there from the very beginning. Um, not only the abolition of slavery, but the abolition of all systems that um, oppressive systems that deny human rights. So, but in lockstep has also been the ways in which capitalism, the ways in which white supremacy has been able to um, recreate itself, to be able to remake itself, to and and I will actually be frank with you to disguise itself as a well, capitalism and and white supremacy sometimes presents itself as a as something that is 
um, about freedom, right? And that is promoting uh, human rights. And I love what you said about mask wearing. And I love what you said about freedom. I was listening, by the way. It was wonderful. Um, and, and, you know, freedom is a very... Um, slippery slope. It's a very complex idea, and it's been used as a weapon um, against people um, and actually against people's freedom. Um, you know, uh, the, that was an argument used by the slaveholders, uh, frankly. The southern states, that, that was what the whole Confederacy was about, their right to own slaves, their freedom to own other human beings. Like your freedom not to wear a mask. My God. Exactly. I do believe that there is definitely a parallel there. So I love, thank you so much for, for raising that issue. Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting when you, when you, when you talk about it, you know, especially we're celebrating July 4th and I have to do a lot of preparation before the show. And so I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to read the Declaration of Independence. You know, how many, who would ever bother? I have never bothered to read it. And I was just marveled by it. You know, the yeah. fact that they were, what they were claiming and what they were wanting. And yet at the same time, they had this division or this, this attitude that there was this one population, actually two populations. It was the, the African Americans and women that were going to be excluded. I mean, it, it was, it, it, it's really very, very dynamic when you read it. Well, I have another question here, you know, that, you know, right now we're talking about feminism and the social justice, you know, we're right now, we're in a pandemic, you know, and I, I want to say something and people might laugh. I don't know about this. You know, everybody says uh, Trump was chosen by God. Well, I agree. He was chosen by God to show us all the garbage that lives within our own country. That it's almost like everything's at the surface now. You know, with the death of George Floyd, you know, you cannot deny it. You know, there's no denying anymore. You saw it right in front of your eyes, you know. And then also, I mean, this this last one with this young man that played the violin. I can't remember his last name. Elijah. Oh my God! When I saw, when I read found out about that one, I said to myself, "Is this the country that I live in?" So, talk about feminism and social justice, and and also the pandemic. Well, how do you how do you see them? How do you see us coming out of it? Or what do you see as the importance of it, or some of the problems around it? Well, going back to the concept of intersectionality, we have what? Gender oppression. We have racial oppression and we have economic oppression. Those are the three big, I mean, and certainly there's others, you know, religious oppression, um, you know, certainly uh, oppression by national origin, uh, oppression by ability, uh, physical ability. We can go on and on and on if we want to really just sort of draw on the concept of um, and draw out the concept of intersectionality. But what we're learning with this pandemic, once again, is that we don't live in a society that is founded on systems of care, systems of care and communalism, right. like true care and compassion for one another. And the reason that the Black Lives Matter movement, and I do, I am grateful, actually, every day that people have, uh, you know, woken up, you know, to the idea that you cannot say somebody allegedly, you know, did whatever they allegedly did and deserved to suffer in the way that, uh, to suffer and to be killed, to be murdered. Um, by a state officer, uh, 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 an officer, right, uh, of the state, right, someone who is 
um, uh, you know, protection, protect and right? serve to protect and serve us. Right. Someone who has this sort of, you know, license um, to 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 kill um, that is, you know, allegedly a license to protect and serve us. Um, that is presumably that, but is really a license to do whatever they want to do without any ramifications. And so what what I think is most important to think about feminism in the pandemic is to think about what kind of world do we want? And what, what the Black Lives Matter movement and it's, it's just all of its glory and beauty in this present moment and it's, it's massiveness. Young people saying, this is it. You know, um, I won't use the word that's used on the meme or on the, on the, the social media, but there's a one going around that I love very much. And it's you, you know, you, you messed with. Uh, think about how that word is replaced in the actual um, one that I won't say on the <laughs> air. But you messed with the last generation. You messed with the last generation. This is it. Enough is enough, as they say at the protest, that I have actually attended some of them. And that's one of the main phrases that they they say. You know, um, what was his name? George Floyd. What was her name? Brianna Taylor. Enough is enough. Your badge is not a license to kill. Your your government position is not a license for hate, to promote hatred and division, um, that we will not stand for it as a people anymore. We just will not stand for it any longer because feminism is, again, about human rights, about all human rights. Black lives matter. Um, and that we need to stop with this business about racial supremacy and racial superiority and the false notion of race, because there is actually only one. Um, and we need to stop with this idea that men deserve more than women and are better than women um, and deserve to be paid more than women. We need to stop with this notion that people uh, need to have some um, right to um tell women what to do with their own bodies because if men had babies there would be none of that we know there would be none of that <laughs> there'd be no discussion of that well, you um, know, and you know, so it's it, it, just to just to just to piggyback a little bit on that it is so interesting that people buy this that's what i don't understand that they buy it that that you have people that are supporting certain politicians that are in poverty themselves it, mm-hmm. It's it's just mm-hmm. a great mystery. Well, you know, Kim, we are slowly but quickly at the same time coming to the end of our uh, session here. And I want you to just, I want to go into the, the last question I have is talk about the Me Too movement and what that awareness is doing. I mean, for the, I mean, that is, as far as I'm concerned, the biggest stand up that women have done. That they've actually stood up and said, hey, listen, this is happening. You know, I'm a victim of it. And I realize that I go along with it, but I, I go along with it because of a system that, that projects it, that, that creates it for me. So talk a little bit about the Me Too movement and how you feel that is empowering feminism and women. I think that it actually has a lot of resonance with Black Lives Matter in the sense that women stood up and are standing up to say, enough is enough and are standing up to say that um you don't have the right to abuse me and for and i will not be silent about that i will not be silent about your violence um against me um and i will not let um you be violent use your power and and be violent against other women 
um, I will speak up and I will encourage my sisters to speak up and I will encourage men who support women to speak up um, that, you know, no one is free unless everybody is free. Right. No one is safe unless everybody is safe. You know what Eugenie Deb said? says, as long as there's one man in prison, I'm not free. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I do think that if we take the Me Too um, movement, if we take Black Lives Matter, and we look at the pandemic, we are at a historic moment. And I don't say that lightly. As a 19th century literary historian, I don't say that lightly. Um, people say that all the time. Oh, this is a historic moment or this is a transformative moment. Um, you know, uh, this is a watershed moment is something we say as, as his, a literary historians. This truly is. This pandemic has forced us to reflect, to think about who we are, not only individually, but who we are as a nation, who we are as a people, who we are as a society, who we are as a global society. If we don't take care of each other, we will not survive. And care and communalism and co- collectivity um, and connection, true connection, is what we need to be safe. Going to the Me Too movement, we need to be safe. We need to care for one another. We need to have compassion and empathy for one another because we will not survive. And Octavia Butler, I want to really make sure that I come right circle right back around to what Octavia Butler wrote about so beautifully in all of her work. And that is, I always start with community. That is where it begins and that is where it will end. Well, let us let us end on that beautiful note. That is a beautiful, beautiful thought. Community. Are there any websites or any way that people can get a hold of you, or that uh, do you have any information that you could give us? No phone numbers, which is no, no, no. The Sonoma State website has, um, you know, it has the book, um, you know, the description of the book, and uh, my other articles. And you can contact me. You can certainly email me because my email is available, um, accessible through the Sonoma State um, website, the English department. And the American Multicultural Studies Department has my has my email information, and I'm, I'd be happy to speak with um, anyone or to you know to communicate with people. And I just want to thank you, Elaine, for the work that you're doing. It's so so important. Well, thank you, and also to let my listeners know that I will have your your email and all the information on Women's Spaces www.womenspaces.com. Thank you so much, Doctor Williams. This has been a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful interview, and I hope that we are going to have other discussions because I just love having you on. You bring so much, so much good information. So thank you so much, so much for being thank on. Thank you for having me, Elaine. It's been a pleasure. Oh, great. I'm glad. Thank you so much. A reminder, you know, tell you, oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Dr. Kim Hester Williams, for a wonderful, wonderful interview again. You know, uh, Dr. Williams is a teacher at Sonoma State, and I, I envy any of her students. Anyway, a reminder, tell your friends that Women's Spaces will be aired again at 11 p.m. this evening. I'm excited I get to listen to myself. This is Elaine B. Holt. You've been listening to Women's Spaces, and I look forward to being with you the next time. Take you home now, the woman in your life. She can wait 
The previous Women's Spaces show was recorded on Monday, July 6, 2020.